epistles, which are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and we are in 1st Timothy 3 this morning, so I'd invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to 1st Timothy 3. This is uh, kind of a series within a series on spiritual leadership, and we're looking at this very important chapter in the Scripture that describes what it looks like to be a spiritual leader in Christ's church, God's family. It describes what it looks like for you as a man or you as a woman or you as a child or a teenager or a senior saint. Uh, What are you supposed to be all about in the body of Christ as you are either leading or aspiring to lead in some capacity in God's house, God's church. This is the household of faith. And guess what? We all have got some chores to do. And so we got to figure out whether or not we need to pick up a shovel. We need to pick up a hammer, pick up something and participate in the body of Christ. And it all starts at the ground level with spiritual leadership. You got to have some leaders raise up in the flock, in the household of faith and move people along. And this is a very formidable list, I have to say in 1 Timothy 3, because this is the list that begins to describe what an overseer or an elder or a pastor is to be, not just what they're supposed to do, but we're talking about who these people are or who they are supposed to be um, in terms of qualifications, in terms of moral living, in terms of character qualities. Now, It moves on in chapter 3 to talk about deacons and deaconesses. In other words, the office of being a servant in the church. And this spans across the genders in terms of you can be a man or a woman as a deacon who is either a deacon or what we call a deaconess, a woman who is identified to serve in the body of Christ. We've just affirmed a bunch more deacons and deaconesses in our church. And this is something that is a great opportunity for all of us to consider. But whether or not you are aspiring to be a church leader in terms of office or not, you have to dial into what we're talking about because all of these qualifications are a list that we should all try to be like by the grace of God. Listen, let me say this. Uh, there was a very helpful phrase for me as, as a person, as a young man who was aspiring to become a pastor. As I looked at this list, it was so intimidating. I had to grab onto something to hang on and not just be blown away and, you know, circled the drain of despair as I looked at my own life. And it was this phrase that a pastor said over and over again. He said, God is not looking for the perfection of your life but he's looking at the direction of your life. That's what matters most. It's not the perfection of your life. None of us are going to be perfect in this life. We're all going to blow it at points throughout life, even in terms of sin patterns. But he's not looking at our perfection, but he's looking at the direction of our life. I heard another pastor one time over a funeral casket as he was preaching this godly woman's funeral say this. He said, listen, this lady, she wasn't perfect but she was blameless. She was blameless. We're going to learn about what it looks like to have a direction that's godly. Now, let me read to you verses 1 through 7. This will open up our discussion regarding the qualifications of spiritual leadership. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. It's a heavy list, isn't it? It seems like it's unreachable 
and intimidating. And I would just say this, listen, instead of sort of being thrown backwards by a list like this, you know, grab on to the grace of the gospel and say to yourself, I want to be more like Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he penned these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to evaluate ourselves and to move towards because we know that the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, can make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's what we're talking about, becoming more like Jesus. Who doesn't want to become more like Jesus? We, we should all, as Christians, want to be more and more like our Savior, our Lord. And that's what this list is doing for us. The outline from last week might get us, give us a running start into the qualifications. We're taking steps towards spiritual leadership. Last week, we talked about the weight of spiritual leadership something we experience when you open up. Did you feel the weight of that? What a pastor, elder, overseer is? It's one office, three titles. That's a heavy duty, sort of tall order to be and and to lead with the word of God. We feel that weight. But then some of us are crazy enough to feel something else. And we feel an inner compulsion by the Holy Spirit prompting us towards leadership. It's like, you know, as, as one person said, hit me, hurt me, make me write bad checks. I mean, I, you're, you're living in the paradox of the weight of spiritual leadership, and then you're, you're moving towards it and saying, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I've got to preach, or I've got to open the word of God with somebody. I've got to lead a community group. I've got to put myself out there. There's no more vulnerable spot than being a spiritual example for other people to follow. And you see the weight and you say, oh, it's heavy, but I want more of it. I want to move in that direction. And that's verse one. It's someone who aspires, someone who desires this. You're throwing yourself into the deep end of the pool, my friends, when you aspire and desire spiritual leadership. But God inflames the heart of believers to put themselves out there to women, to lead women's studies, to disciple other women, to pursue people in evangelism, to co-lead, you know, as a husband-wife team or some sort of scenario where you are participating in spiritual leadership. This is the call of all of us as Christians, but we should evaluate ourselves by these qualifications as we pursue spiritual leadership. And that comes to embracing the work of spiritual leadership. This is our third point embracing the work and I got to say this what I said last week again and that is the work that is that the work of spiritual leadership is primarily your character you say work and character how does that fit well you're working on your character as you are pursuing spiritual leadership or as the children's song puts it so appropriately he's still working on me As you pursue spiritual leadership, you are sensing and relying upon the work of the Holy Spirit to make you qualified for spiritual leadership. He's the one building these qualifications in you. None of us are at the zenith apex of fulfilling these list of qualifications, but it is very vitally essential that as you move into spiritual leadership, that God is forming godly character in and through you and fulfilling these things so that you're becoming the example you need to be. And to be a spiritual leader, by and large, is being the right person more than what you do. If you are the right person, if God is working in you and these character qualifications are being worked out in your life, guess what? Spiritual leadership will take care of itself. It's being the right person. You know this even in the secular work. When you have people that work for you that have character, guess what? You don't have to follow and chase them around in terms of how hard they work, right? Or the decisions that they make, right? They're going to do the right thing because they're the right person. They've got Christ character in them. At least that's how it has to be in the church. But it's all about being the right person. My outline list is made up of 16 qualifications. And they're kind of a list that spans these verses, 1 through 7, but also dips into the qualifications of deacon and deaconess. We'll look at that next week. And then Titus chapter 1. And so I've, out of those sort of three lists, I've made 16 qualifications for us to look through. 
But I have to say that 13 of the 16 qualifications are characterological. They're your character. They all are about who you are. And as we look through these, we'll feel the weight of them. But I want to remind you, it's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of your life that matters most. It's responding to these qualifications as you are becoming Christ-like as a leader in the church. So, you ready to look through these? Can we do that? All right, number one, verse two. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The first qualification is that you have to be blameless. Now, you know, this could wipe us all out if we just say, well, you know, I I did this 10 years ago, that, I've got this issue in my life. Hey, I'm checking out, I'm not blameless. But I don't want you to do that. The idea of being blameless or irreproachable is an overarching qualification in this list. It's the first one. And the reason it's the first one is because All of the other qualifications inform this qualification. You have to be blameless in what Paul's going to talk about for the next seven verses. Blameless, irreproachable. As one mentor put it to me, you've got to clean up your messes. You can't leave things alone. If there are issues in your life, if there are, you know, uh, if there's a, a series of train wrecks, you've got to go back and deal with those things because you can't be vulnerable as a spiritual leader where people can attack you or your office. And frankly, as a spiritual leader, guess what you're primarily doing? You're upholding the purity of the gospel, which is rocking people's worlds in their hearts because you're holding the standard of God's holiness up and you're calling people to repent of their sins. And so as a spiritual leader, you can't have dangling, unresolved, unreconciled sin issues that people can attack you over. And so you have to clean up your mess. You can't be irreproach. You have to be irreproachable, not open to attack. And so it's the general pattern of your life that you are being godly in these qualifications that follow. It comes through maturity, but let's look at the next one to fill out what it means to be above reproach. Number two, you are what the Bible says, a, the husband of one wife. What does that mean? The husband of one wife. Well, first of all, it means that pastor, elders, overseers are male because of the husband of one wife, okay? That's one thing it means. Some people have interpreted this to say, hey, you know what? As a pastor, you can't have sister wives, okay? You know, you can't, you can't be a polygamist or you can't have several wives. But I think that's making this qualification too narrow. Obviously, you know, you're supposed to be one man married to one woman, but there's all kinds of immoralities that you have to be above reproach regarding and I think that's a little narrow in Paul's day um, polygamy was not you know all the rage and so I don't think Paul was dealing with Timothy and the churches along those lines Um, to be the husband of one wife some people say you know you can only be married once and that's it so you know uh, you know you get me and if if I die the wife says then you know you're kind of out of the ministry and you're out of luck no I I don't know I mean that that seems a little narrow-minded as well um it it sometimes people say you have to be married to be a pastor and I don't see that either because Paul in first Corinthians 7 he applauds and affirms singleness and how you're freed up to minister Jesus our great shepherd was obviously not married Paul was single and so I don't think it's that either what it I believe means is that the man of God is focused he's a one woman man he's focused on his wife Or if he's a single man who's ministering, he's focused on the Lord, singly focused that way. And then if the Lord provides him one woman, then he's focused on that woman. It's being single focused. It's being morally pure. You're not a divided heart who's looking to feed some kind of lust secretly. It's dealing at the core level with the sin of lust that many men struggle with greatly. And so as a minister of the gospel, you have to be pure. You have to be a one-woman man. You can't be um, a ladies' man and be a minister of the gospel. You can't do that. I mean, some of you women, you may pick up for me a vibe where I'll give a little bit of distance when I talk to you. You know, I, I think it's important in terms of pastoral ministry 
to leave some room between the, a man and a woman. It's like having good bedside manner as a doctor. You want to set women at ease as you minister to them. You're dealing on spiritual levels where people have wounded hearts. And so there are many times where pastors and ministers and spiritual leaders will take advantage of women by means of their office and their spiritual position. And so that's a disqualifier. You can't be that kind of person. You can't be immoral in your heart as a pastor. You have to fight that battle and you have to always be circumspect in your heart that way. Uh, One way to sort of fill this out, and I won't belabor this, but 1 Timothy 5 is talking about the qualifications for a woman in church who is a widow as to whether or not she needs to be provided full-time for at the church. This is, you know, her family can't provide for her. Maybe all of her relatives have died or, or are unable to provide for her. And this is a woman who's at least 60 years of age. And it says in verse 9 that she is, look at this at the end of the verse, chapter 5, the wife of one husband. I mean, does that mean that this woman was only married once? And so now, you know, that qualifies her to be, you know, affirmed financially in the church? No. It means that she was focused and devoted as a wife to the one husband she was married to one at a time. It's, it's a heart level issue that we're talking about. I mean, she could have been married several times and had husbands die off and then she's 60. Now, we don't know what she did to those men to, you know, for them to die. But anyway, I mean, the issue is have, well, I mean, she is called a widow. Now, anyway, I mean, the issue is having a irreproachable heart. She's not someone who's, verse verse 13, idle, a gossip, a busybody. She's not confused in her passions. She's not apostate. She's a godly praying woman who is... As verse 9 says, the wife of one husband. That's just the flip side of the husband of one wife, chapter 3, verse 2. A one-woman man. Um, verse, well, let's go to the next one, next qualification. It's number three. You're blameless, you're one-woman man. Number three, you're sober-minded, sober-minded. This means that you're a clear-headed thinker. You're sober-minded. It does touch on the issue of alcohol use and we're going to look at that um, in more detail um, later in verse 3 not a drunkard but I'm just saying you have to be a sober-minded person literally unmixed with wine you have full use of your faculties and the idea here is the sobriety of the Christian life as a spiritual leader guess what it is your job it is your responsibility to think about the realities of heaven and hell on behalf of other people, whether you're leading someone to Christ, that's the responsibility of all Christians. Whether you are a Bible study leader, whether you're discipling somebody, you have to think about their souls or soul on behalf of what's going to happen to it in the future. Because eternity is a long time. Heaven's a great place to be. Hell is hot. It's a bad place to be. You don't want to be there. But both of those realities are there. And as we prayed at the beginning or middle of the service for people who've died, we know that life is short. And it sobers us up to live our lives in view of eternity. A spiritual leader is someone who also, in terms of being sober-minded, you drink deeply in God's word and in the riches of Christ. You have to be a prayer. I mean, nothing sobers you up more than prayer. I'm reminded of um, a quote that I'll share with you. It's William Hendrickson, one of my favorite commentators of the New Testament. He said this about sober-minded. He said, such a person lives deeply. His pleasures are not primarily those of the senses, like the pleasures of a drunkard, for instance, but those of the soul. He's filled with spiritual and moral earnestness. He's not given to excess, but is moderate, well-balanced, calm, careful, steady, and sane. That's spiritual leadership. Sober-minded. This is a, this is a tough one for me. I mean, I have 
a lot of video games in my house. I've got a lot of toys that fly across the room. I've, you know, I've got a lot of kids that are doing a lot of things. The thing that keeps me calm in the midst of six-kid chaos is Christ being on the throne and the Lord of our household and the Lord of our lives. And as you discipline children, as you educate children, as you try to disciple them and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, you have to know that God is in control. And as you lead spiritually on behalf of other people, thinking about future realities, you should be thinking in a sober-minded way. Well, number four. Number one, you're blameless. You're a one-woman man. You're sober-minded. Number four, self-controlled. This is also kind of a a companion idea with being sober-minded. It means you're clear-headed about your life priorities. Um, Oftentimes, uh, even on a day off, I will make a list of about five things that I want to accomplish that day. You're someone who redeems the time. You're goal-oriented, and you have your priorities in place. You can't be someone who's sinking financially and be a spiritual leader. And let me tell you, it's easy to do something like that. And I'll tell you why. Ministry is 24-7. I mean, I have office hours. I show up here. I study here. uh, But I'm ministering all the time. I mean, I'm on the phone with people. I'm thinking about people. I'm thinking about you all the time. I'm praying for you all the time. Uh, As a minister of the gospel, I'm thinking in terms of my life's calling all the time. And if you're an elder, you're that way. If you're a pastor, you're that way. Overseer, you're that way. I mean, you're that person. It's easy to get consumed with ministry. And ministry is filled with multitasking. And there's always the constant crush of what should I do or be doing. The thin veil between your home life and your ministry life is very thin. And so you're constantly tempted to do too much. And so, you know, there are times where I literally have to make a conscious decision as a pastor to just try to turn the faucet off. You know, there's a constant rush of water in regards to the church and you have to sometimes just shut it down shut the cell phone off walk away from it why because I have a family to attend to and that's part of being self-controlled you're a constant multitasker if you're in spiritual leadership but you've got to exercise the fruit of the spirit which is self-controlled or an organized life number five respectable Respectable. This is um, a synonym for being dignified. And let me tell you this. There is a great um, sort of vacuum for dignity in our culture these days, right? I mean, people want to be more and more slipshod and disrespectful, especially to those in authority positions. And part of the fault of that is that the standard has been lowered and leaders have not upheld the standard of being dignified. People who are worthy of respect. I saw a a little bit of an example of this in my neighborhood recently. My kids uh, all play in the cul-de-sac that we live off of. And uh, there are neighborhood children that come in. And there's this kid who he he just, I mean, I'm not going to mention him by name and whatever. But he's about 9 or 10 years old. And he just bugs people all the time, right? He asks a million questions, you know, and just goes on and on and on and on. He's always asking adults. He he treats adults like they're his peers. And so he just does this thing and harasses people. There are neighbors who won't even come out in the yard when he's around. I mean, he and his kid sister, you know. And so finally, you know, I had 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 enough of this because he was, you know, saying, hey, what are you doing today? Where are you going? You know, what are you up to? And are you doing this? And are you doing, I'm just trying to work in the yard, you know, and he's on and on. Finally, I said, look, hey, kid, um, you know, I won't say his name, but I said his name. I said, come over here. So he's just, you know, walking up to me in my yard and all the other kids are like, you know, what's going to happen? And I said, listen, um, I'm, you know, 41 years old. I'm a senior pastor of a church. And so when you address me, I want you to look me in the eye and say, Mr. Kratz or Pastor Kratz, and and that's how you'll address me, because I'm the adult and you're the child, you know, and he's just looking at me, and and finally I said, we kind of made a friendship over this respect lesson, I said, here, shake my hand, and he kind of put this lame fish in my hand, I said, no, squeeze it, you know, and look me in the eye when you talk to me, and, and let's talk, and so now it's Mr. Kratz, and he still asks a million questions. Mr. Kratz, what are you doing with the hose? You know, what are you doing with the yard? What are you doing with this? So it, it didn't change, um, you know, everything, but it definitely put an air of respect, and, and we made a friendship out of that. But obviously, he's not been taught at home 
how children are to respect adults. But it's the same thing in the church. There should be a sense of dignity and respect amongst the spiritual leadership to the flock and this dynamic relationship where leaders are holding the standard and the flock is moving along and growing in like kind. That's how I want to be. Again, I am... Um, under the elders here. I'm a fellow elder, I'm the senior pastor, but I'm a man under authority. And I have, I have been led along by our elder board these last four years, and it has helped me spiritually in many ways. And so we all should strive to be that example. Blameless, one-woman men, men sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and then hospitable. Hospitable. Look at that one. I mean, this might seem to be no big deal, but hospitality is an incredible spiritual opportunity for you to minister to people through. Listen, hospitality is a way for you to serve the body of Christ. You say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to serve. Well, have a meal, put some food in the crock pot, come to church and invite people over to your house. You say, but I don't know these people, but that's the point. The point is you invite people to your house that you don't even know. You say, but that's risky. Yes, that's the point. Yeah, but people are going to use my stuff. Yeah, that's the point. But they're going to use my bathroom. Yes, that's the point. I mean, people come to my house and I've, you know, had people over with the guest reception thing um, that I've recently started. And, and you know, it, I don't know who you are, who you're, you know, but I come over. And yeah, toys are around the floor. We try to clean up a little bit, but we're not trying to create a perfect house, right? It's not the perfection of your house. It's the direction of your house. Anyway, no, I, you, you got to have a house, you know, and, and food on and people come and, and they enjoy it. And people give comments as a release valve. Oh, I just love a house where toys are all over the place it makes me feel at ease and comfortable, right? Uh, well, thank you for saying that. But anyway, I mean, the point is be hospitable. People never forget the time that they have over at your house because you, you, you're vulnerable when you're in your own home. People, people look at you differently. They know you more deeply and intimately when they're in your home. Specifically, being hospitable is something that is attitudinal. 1 Peter 4, 9 says you're supposed to be hospitable without grumbling. Hebrews 13, 2, some have entertained angels unaware by being hospitable. It's very spiritual. 3 John 5 is where John, as the elder apostle, was commending the churches in Asia Minor, saying, listen, you have invited uh, people into your home who are brothers, who are missionary strangers to you. And he commended them for that. Now I'll flip over to one place. It's Luke chapter 14. It's something I found this week in my study. It's a parable of Christ. And I just think it's so appropriate. Luke 14, verse 12. This is what Christ said about being hospitable. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Did you catch that? But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So there's no conflict of interest in hospitality that's genuine. You, you give and it's more blessed to give than to receive. You're just giving and enjoying the giving of yourself and your resources away to people. And you give to people with no mixed motive and you just leave the, the result up to God. It's kind of like doing children's ministry. You get a lot of attaboys in preschool. No, I mean, the, the kids aren't coming up to you primarily and saying, you know, thank you for letting me crawl all over you and infect you with uh, the germ pool that I, you know, have in my, you know, system right now. I mean, there's not a whole lot of that going on, but if you give with an open heart in children's ministry, what happens is, is that you're blessed. Same thing with hospitality. It's, it's the same thing as uh, giving a loan away to somebody. You might have an agreement that that person's going to pay you back. But when you freely give in the name of Christ, whether they give you the money back or not, you're blessed and you trust God in that. You should give with no strings attached, being hospitable. All right, next, number seven, you're not a drunkard. You're not a drunkard. We're only going to make it through the character qualifications today, by the way, but um, you're not a drunkard. Now, what am I going to talk about with, with that? Um, 
listen, I do not believe that it is a sin to consume alcoholic beverages. Um, you know, I know that's sort of a hot button gray area discussion. There's a lot of people who have suffered under the hand of a of a um, alcoholic father or mother. There are a lot of people who have lost everything because of the addiction to alcoholic beverages. There are people who have been beaten because of alcoholic beverages. There, there, there are people who've died in car crashes or been killed by people who've consumed and been drunk with alcoholic beverages. I'm not um, dismissing any of that sad reality, but I also want to be honest with Scripture. Where scripture does um, show Jesus as his first miracle at the wedding in Canaan as turning water into wine. So he's affirming that, that drink. And there is Old Testament passages that affirm um, drinking alcohol as a gift. And uh, there was the um, sort of pouring of the alcohol onto the sacrifice um, that was uh, given to God. But there's also some pretty strong warnings against intoxication where uh, the priest in Leviticus 10.9 were not to perform sacrifices under the influence of alcohol whatsoever. Kings were not to uh, consume alcohol, Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. The Nazarite vow, which John the Baptist was under, meant that they did not drink alcohol. That's to keep a clear mind. Noah, after he had been saved through the flood, consumed alcoholic beverages and became drunk and was, was seen in his nakedness by his son, Ham. And so you have the warning of alcoholic beverages. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says that wine is a mocker. You have to be careful. And the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 5, 13, don't get drunk with wine. Ephesians 5, 18, rather. Don't be, you know, it's, it's forbidden to be drunk. It's forbidden to be inebriated. And especially as a spiritual leader, you're not somebody who is frequenting the bars and lingering long by wine and, and, and filling your heart and mind with intoxication. But it's not that you're completely forbidden to drink. I, I'll just point out one text, Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23 is probably the severest warning in Scripture against alcohol and being drunk. Verse 29, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. This is the idea of a drunk person looking into their cup. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of the mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? Another, I must have another drink. Well, to be a spiritual leader, this, this can't be typical of you. This can't be part of your life. You're not someone who disobeys God's word in this way. And as I read earlier, you need to drink deeply in God. God is the one who is the source of satisfaction. I, you know, there, there are people who say, well, you know, I'm drinking so that I can cope with life, so that I can just get through that's what this is forbidding in spiritual leadership. We can't use alcohol as a crutch to cope or even medications to cope. I mean, everything in moderation, right? But, but when you're out of control, and especially if there's an addiction, this is forbidden in terms of being a spiritual leader. You have to be careful with that one. And I'll just say this, the next few qualifications kind of compress together along the lines of not being drunk. First Timothy chapter 3, um, not being drunk, verse 3, not being a drunkard, and then not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. All of those qualifications go together. It means that you're not somebody who gets inebriated and then goes fist to cuffs with people and fights people or beats people or intimidates people because you're inebriated. You're out of control. You're not this quarrelsome person. That's not being like Christ. Remember Jesus, when he was attacked, he was gentle. When he was hit in the face, he turned the other cheek. When his beard was ripped out, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When he was spit upon, he was praying for them. He was dying for them. 
And this is what it looks like to be like Jesus Christ. Not violent, but gentle. Not a brawler, not a bar fighter. You know, I was um, recently reminded of this qualification in my own heart when I uh, went uh, back to where I grew up in Virginia, Virginia Beach, and I went to a mall. I've shared this story with some of you, but I was at a mall and I was, um, it was my old stomping grounds. I used to walk to that mall when I was 12 years old and shop and things like that. And you, you have the food court area. And so I went to the food court area and we've got, I've got my parents and my kids and everybody's following me, but I wanted Taco Bell. And nobody else wanted Taco Bell. So we all went to our own separate, you know, um, food of our choice. And I'm standing there. And what happened is, as I walked into the mall, I realized that it's been a long time since this was a clean place. And instead, it was filled with a bunch of thugs and gangs. And, and so I'm walking around thinking, man, this is just a different way of life in this mall. And as I'm standing there, there was a table behind me, and it was four guys and, uh, you know, teenagers, older teenagers, and a gal who was just sitting there with her head down with her eye touch or whatever. And suddenly, the ringleader of that table started to say explicatives at me about where I was standing in proximity to the girl. And I just thought, wow, I haven't been spoken to like that in a long time. So I just turned around and stared each one of them in the eye and said, who do you think you're talking to? Okay, I mean, that's not the smartest move in the world to do, but, you know, I just sort of wanted to give them a little leadership at my old stomping grounds. But immediately I thought, you know, where is this going to go? Because I can't be a brawler, right? I can't be a fighter. I can't be violent. So I dialed it back in my heart and just thought, okay, this is an opportunity to witness. So I said, listen, I'm a senior pastor of a local church, and I grew up here. What high school do you guys go to? Because I went to high school here, and I love Christ, and you all need Jesus. And so I sort of moved in that way, and, and they were disrespecting this girl, and her head was down, and she was obviously under some kind of abuse. And I said, and this precious girl was made in the image of God, and she needs Jesus too. And so about that time, my parents are coming around and my kids and they're going, what is going on? Jeff is holding church in the food court and it's a little bit tense right now. But, you know, they started to smile and relaxed a little bit and realized what they were dealing with. But it, it was it's a good opportunity for me to examine my own heart. You can't be quarrelsome. You can't pick fights. You're going to get cut off in traffic. You're going to want to, you know, drive up behind somebody. You're going to want to intimidate people. But that's not what it means to be a spiritual witness for Christ. Okay, so not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. You're cool-minded. And then number 10, you're not a lover of money. You can't serve two masters. Listen, ministry is always on the clock. And if you are a minister of the gospel, there's no way you can quantify what you're doing in terms of what you're paid. You can't go there. You can't let your heart go there. Listen, if you're bivocational, if you're a lay minister, you can't go there. There isn't a punch clock for morning and evening and day. I mean, you need to have, again, order to your life. You need to be responsible and accountable to other people in terms of where you are and what you're doing. But the, the faucet's always running, and it's really hard to turn it off. And so you can't do it for money. In 1 Peter 5, it says you can't do it for sordid gain. You, you can't manipulate the church for money. And many people have fallen out of ministry because they're found cooking the books and getting money for themselves. It's a temptation. It's greed. And instead, we should pursue the godliness that's found with contentment. Contentment in Christ. I never serve Christ and think about what I'm earning by the service I'm giving. That, that doesn't enter into my mind. I'm accountable for what I earn. I, do, I think about the accountability of what I receive, but I don't do things in terms of, okay, that just earned me another paycheck. That's not the way that you minister the gospel. You have to be someone who's a tent maker in heart and mind, and you serve the flock for the sake of the gospel. Not a lover of money, not a silver lover. If you serve people for money, guess what will happen? your joy will be sapped quickly. It will. You know, one, one thing I read that I think is so helpful in ministry, and that is that you can't rehearse in your mind things like money or hurts that happen in ministry. You can't take that into your mouth like, you know, a chewing gum and and work that over in your mouth like like you're working something over in your mind and in your heart because when you nurse and rehearse 
hurts and wounds or in terms of what you believe that you deserve for what you're doing, guess what happens? You sink and your joy is sapped and you become a victim-minded person. You can never do that. You have to discipline yourself not to do that. The happy person is who's moving down the path and not ensnared by that kind of entrapment. Well, number 11, manages his household well. I'll quote John Calvin real quickly, great pastor, and he actually had several children and he lost several um, and buried them because children would die of things um, frequently in that stage of history. Calvin said, the life of the church should never overrun the life of the home. That's true. Uh, My first church is my little church, which is my home. I mean, that is part of being a pastor, elder, overseer, is having a a little church or a home that's under control. He must manage, verse 4, his own household well with all dignity. The word manage is rule. You are to rule your household. You are to be the, the leader, the general, where you have, you know, you have your, your wife as your first sergeant and you have uh, the children who are in ranking order underneath you. That's the language here in a household that's under control. Why? Because the household and your leadership there is the laboratory for whether or not you are going to be an effective pastor, elder, overseer in a church. How can you manage Look at this. Look what it says. God's church. Whose church is it? It's God's church. What a stewardship. How can you be that steward if you're not being faithful at home? Well, is a home supposed to be perfect? Well, it's not going to be perfect. And, you know, I'm transparent, I think, enough with you about some of the things that we go through. But, you know, the older my kids get, the more accountable I become to something like this because it's, it's showing up whether or not my children are receiving the faith that I have modeled in front of them or not. And you say, well, how do you put together the sovereignty of God and salvation where kids either are going to believe or not based on God's redeeming grace and sovereign hand and um, our own influence? Well, I don't have the answer to that question. I don't. I, I mean, we can't force salvation on our kids, right? We can't force them to believe But I think that as parents, we are more responsible for setting the conditions for children to believe than we give ourselves credit for. And I know many people, perhaps even here, are heartsick over how they did or whatever, and there's the grace of God to make up, you know, for that. But we are are incredibly influential as parents. And as you talk to a teenager, as you talk to a young child, as you talk to a young adult college kid, or you talk about, talk to a young adult, or even as my parents talk to me today, if I get on the phone with them, there's a dynamic there, right? What is it? You know, you say, you know, you really should be in the Word of God. You, you really should be praying, and you really should be seeking Christ. And, and what do you do as a kid? You go, you know, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that, you know. But in the heart, at the heart level, the kid's going, you know, boom, 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 boom. That's accountability. Like, you know, dad and mom, they see that I'm not praying or that I'm not reading or I'm not worshiping or I'm not giving or I'm not serving. And when you say that and you speak that into the heart of your child, your child hears you more than you ever would imagine. You say, but yeah, I don't live a perfect life in front of them. But it, it, it's so easy to let yourself out of the responsibility of speaking into the heart and life of your children. But that is absolutely your responsibility. It's what you're supposed to do. It's managing your household spiritually. And Titus 1, we'll look at that next week, talks about having children who actually believe. And that's part of your qualification. That's a hard one. But as a general rule, your faith should be being passed down in the household. Because as 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, your children otherwise are unclean, but when you have a believer in the home, that that influence makes them holy. It's the idea that there is a powerhouse of redeeming influence in a Christian's home. So it's important to wield that responsibility well. I have a friend who called me yesterday as I was studying the text and thinking this through, who I've known since I was, what, 21, 20 years old, and he's been an associate pastor for 15, 16 years, and um, he's stepping aside because his teenage boys are out of control. So he's moving. He's moving to where there's some more extended family to help out, to be near grandparents. He's going into secular work, and he's saying, look, for now, I need to get this under control. He's told the elders. They're all in agreement, and he's good with it. 
because he knows the priority of the home life is paramount. That's why I went camping the other day. I just got back. I mean, we, Judy, you know, how do I keep dialed into my kids? She tells me, hey, you need to go pursue that one. You need to listen to me. Listen, this is going on. You're distracted this way. What do I, I listen. I mean, that's, that's the way to get through this is to listen to your spouse, to listen to your kids. And listen, it didn't come up in the interview process, but I don't really like sleeping on a hard, you know, campground floor. You know, I, I was telling Nathan Schneider, I went camping in Seward and, um, you know, we're right next to the bathrooms and the electricity and, you know, we got this. He said, I thought you went camping. Anyway, but so, so we did. We went camping and, you know, I, I laid the foam mattress down and we didn't bring the air mattress, but you know how that rock is going to find the middle of your spinal cord, you know, in the middle of the night. I mean, that's not enjoyable to me, but you do it. Why? Because you're with your kids. You're poking the fire with them. And we actually got out on Seward and got out on the water. I mean, it was a blast. I had a great time for one night and then I came home. But I mean, it was, it was awesome. And, and you do that because that's, that's listening and, and connecting with your family, managing your household. Number 12, you can't be a recent convert. Um, we'll move quickly uh, through these. Um, that, that means you can't be newly planted as a Christian and be a spiritual leader, especially an elder at that level, because you get puffed up in pride. It's like smoke ascending. You'll look down on people that you say, look, I'm in this office and you're not in this office. It's a recipe for disaster. How disastrous is it? You become puffed up with conceit or pride and you fall into the condemnation of the devil. The devil has never been God's judge in the scripture. Um, God is the Lord over hell and judgment, not Satan. Satan's not ruling hell. Satan's a roaring lion trying to drag people down into the same plight that he finds himself. He's trying to drag people down with him into hell. And if you're elevated in spiritual leadership, you will experience too soon as a neophyte, then you are vulnerable to experience the same kind of humbling process that God took Satan down from. Remember Isaiah 14, his five I wills, I will ascend, I will be above God, I will, I will, I will. And God humbled him and his doom is sure and set for him to burn in the lake of fire for all of eternity. Well, it's not that if you are elevated too soon in spiritual leadership that you'll go to hell. That's not what this is saying. It's just saying that you will be humbled like Satan was humbled if you're there and you shouldn't be. I've seen that happen over and over again. People who are, you know, tall, um, <laughs> tall, tan, and wonderful, right? I mean, the, you know, big man on campus, and you put them in leadership because they're articulate and whatever, and they don't need to be there, and they fall. Number seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let me just say this. Um, the front end of our qualifications list was being above reproach, blameless, irreproachable. Well, the back end of this qualifications list is how you are evaluated in terms of the community. And I think this is a very, very powerful sort of bookending um, qualification. And what I mean by that is this. Um, there is su- supreme, incredible um, spiritual, ca- spiritual accountability that I am under right now in real time with you right now. I mean, you're watching me, you're evaluating what I say, you're soul searching in terms of what I'm saying, you're evaluating me in terms of scripture. There's a lot of stuff going on in the minds and hearts of you in this spiritual moment. I am under extreme accountability. I am less so under accountability behind shut doors in my house. I am even less so under accountability when I'm at Best Buy or I'm at the hardware store, when I'm talking with people in the public. Um, accountability kind of is, is lessened as you go concentric circles out from the church to the community. And so it is of paramount importance that you are the real thing, not just in church or in the pulpit or behind a Bible study lectern, but that you are the real thing out there in the community for two reasons. One, It shows if you really are the real thing when you are being spiritually minded and loving Christ in front of the world because they're not scrutinizing how spiritual you are or not. I mean, how you broker deals, how you represent yourself, what your testimony is like in in the store, in the marketplace, you know, when you're ripped off, how you respond. That's an incredible um, vindication that you're the real thing when you're gentle, not quarrelsome, not picking fights. 
not doing people wrong. And then secondly, it's an incredible witness for Christ when you're out there being that salt and light in the public eye. Um, Colossians says, may your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that people will ask you about your faith. They'll ask you questions about how you are spiritually. And that's what we are supposed to do. And if we don't have this testimony, this martyr witness out in the community, then we'll, we could fall into disgrace in the snare of the devil. You know what, that, that's just the language and picture of Satan setting traps for you. And let me just tell you this. Look, if you've sat under the preaching of the word this morning and you're saying, you know, I might want to be a spiritual leader. I might want to lead a community group. I might want to disciple somebody. I might want to pursue eldership. I might want to pursue full-time ministry. I might want to be a deacon. I might want to be a deaconess. I might want to be identified in this way. Guess what's going to happen? Satan's going to set a trap to try to snare you and drag you down with him to where he is. It's what he wants to do. He's trying to take out the leadership of churches to take churches down. And he's trying to take out, I think, even especially those who are wrestling with whether or not they should do it. So resist the devil and he will flee from you. Trust Christ. Guard your testimony. Guard your heart out in the public eye. And guess what? You are in the fight at that point and you are undergoing spiritual warfare and you're fighting the good fight of faith. Because God can use you in a mighty way. You say, oh, he can't use me. I'm not qualified. Well, grow in the qualifications. Put yourself under a mentor and move in that direction and watch God use you. I'm telling you, some of you, many of you have sat on the sidelines and you need to be used by God. This is God's word for you. It's his mouthpiece to draw you into church leadership. And this kind of work is eternal work. And it's lasting work. The church is God's institution, and I call you and beg you, participate in the work of God. Find out what he wants you to do. Well, we'll pick up on this next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this list of qualifications. It is foreboding. It is intimidating. But God, in the paradox of uh, the spiritual life, sometimes the harder it looks, the more challenging it becomes and more inspiring it is for us to jump on board and do things for your glory. Lord, as we turn our attention now to the communion, I pray, God, that we would be humbly embracing the gospel because the gospel is what uh, calms us as we are intimidated by your holiness. It's what cleanses our conscience where we know that you are in control. And Lord, we can serve you because of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.